Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, Tyler, we often talk about it, and it's very true that the coastal environment is the most dynamic landscape on the planet. And uh, it's not just dynamic because of what nature does with storms and rivers and inlets and all of the things that the natural environment provides. Uh, It's also dynamic because we change it and manipulate it. And uh, there are professionals who work on coastal projects. Uh, The profession of coastal engineering is essential on the American shoreline and has a whole lot to do with the success of our human endeavors on the American shoreline. So today, Tyler, we're going to get to talk about that. Yeah, we're bringing a a friend of ASPN back on. Uh, Michael was Michael Poff is going to be joining us, ladies and gentlemen. You'll remember Michael from uh, some of our original content way back in 2018. We we had a show with Michael, but today we're going to explore the world of coastal engineering and uh, some projects that are currently underway, recently completed in some cases. How the coastal engineering. Pr- engineering profession is adapting to life in the covid era and also i think we're going to kind of be talking about the big picture of what coastal engineering what the future of coastal engineering looks like and how to what extent we can rely on these uh really talented uh and kind of you know Coastal engineering is kind of a badass profession because yeah. we're we're designing landscapes and oftentimes and it's it's just it's really quite cool. So looking forward to this one. But as always, before we get into it, we need to have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Well, Michael Poff, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thanks for taking time to join us. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Tyler. Pleasure to be here again. Well, I want to do a quick introduction, Michael, for our listeners out there and talk about your company. Uh, Michael Poff is the president and founder of Coastal Engineering Consultants. 
It is a full-service coastal engineering firm that Tyler and I have had the benefit of working with in the past. Outstanding group of folks. They're headquartered in Bonita Springs, Florida, and they have a Louisiana office as well. They're doing a bunch of work over in the Mississippi River Delta in Denham Springs, Louisiana. So uh, we're really happy to talk, Michael. I know you're busy as hell running a company and with all of the projects you have underway. Uh, How are you doing? How's the company faring these days? And uh, has the COVID universe changed your practices? Well, thanks, Peter. That's a lot of questions in one one breath there. So, but I I can't take credit for founding Coastal Engineering. That was Dr. Michael Steven and Chris Dane. Ah, sorry. So that's okay. That's all right. I'm pretty uh, sure we made that same mistake last time. Did Probably, we? <laughs> so we can always re-record the beginning if you want to. So anyway, let's keep on going. No, so we, we have remained steady in the face of COVID-19 and the pandemic because of our backlog of projects that we already had on the books. We had six construction projects underway in March when the state of Florida and many other states declared their emergencies and put on their restrictions and our clients mostly local governments and state governments said, well, we aren't sure exactly what we're going to do, but if you want to keep working, we would love for you to keep working. And the contractors all said that they would like to keep working. And ironically, or whatever the right term is, because of these projects being mostly public parks, beachfront parks, the beach itself, the Bear Islands in Louisiana, the restrictions on keeping public out of the parks and off the beach allowed the contractors to actually work unimpeded. And it made their job in terms of security and and maintaining a safe work environment amidst usually what would be a very busy spring break and tourist season here in Florida in March, April, and May, they were able to accomplish a lot of work. And so they all kept working. So we met as a team and we talked about it and we have been trying to do our best to follow the CDC guidelines for social distancing, uh, albeit that we do have inspectors and engineers in the field and they say that's one of the safer places to be able to keep working. In the office, we rarely have 10 people in the office at the same time. So we were able to maintain that below 10 in our workspace. We have a, a very large new office space that we're able to work out of. So. As I said, we've been trying to follow the guidelines and we had supplies that we purchased. Fortunately, our vendors were very good about making sure that they kept us fully supplied with the cleaning products. We gave everyone their personal bottle of hand sanitizer and have at every workstation and public area, all of the, the cleaning supplies. We had our cleaning service. We doubled up. A lot of people over here laid off their cleaning service because they didn't feel like they could afford to keep them and or they weren't in the office. We stayed working the whole time. And so we had our cleaning service come in twice a week to do extra cleaning for us. And we kept a lot of people out in the field and working as we do on beach nourishment projects. Our dredge contractors work 24 seven. So we were doing a lot of inspections. We were doing evenings, nights, weekends. So from a standpoint of the last three months, it was kind of business as usual, albeit with a a flair for extra cleanliness and trying to maintain that social distancing. My concern though, is what's going to happen in the next 12 to 24 to 36 months. Many of those same projects I've been talking about are funded by tourist tax money, tourist development through the bed taxes here in Florida. 
And those numbers are at rock bottom because of not being able to have the travel, the hotels, the industry for the tourism. So we see projects that were contemplated for the next several years may have to be delayed because of funding constraints. The state of Florida has a means by which they've been funding certain percentages of the beach program and inlet management program. And we're not sure how it's going to be affected yet. Our funding applications will be coming due for the local governments in September. They just went through rulemaking that was completely um, um, independent of anything that had to do with COVID-19. And so that process was delayed because of the renewal rulemaking and because of COVID trying to do rulemaking during COVID was obviously very challenging for the state. So, so we'll see what happens with uh, the funding of, of the beach projects and beach programs. So those impacts aren't, aren't even yet quantified, but from the local government standpoint, as I said, we expect some of these local projects funded by tourism dollars to have to get delayed until the funds catch up. So we will see what we will find here and look forward to maybe a future podcast with you both to talk about how that all worked out. Maybe a year from now, we can reconvene on, on where we stand with those projects. No question about it. And you, you raise, you raise some really great points there about just the broad, uh, uncertainty that we are all kind of living with, uh, right now, but certainly being a, a coastal engineering company where, um, I would say, Michael, is it true that the majority of your clients are, are public entities? That is correct. We do work with private developers for waterfront related infrastructure. So we do have a good sector there as well, but I would say about 70, 75% of yeah. our projects are all public local state governments, maybe even federal governments in terms of when they get involved with the barrier shoreline restoration program that we do. Right. So, you know, this is going to be a theme, uh, with our local governments on the American shoreline, uh, tourism dollars are down. Uh, that particular economy is going to be one of the hardest hit I have to imagine, uh, because of COVID. But Michael, you, I referenced in the opening that you had been on the show uh, way back in 2018, I do believe is when it was. And um, I'd like to just do a bit of a primer. What does a coastal engineering company do? What kind of projects, you know, for our audience that might not be, might not have worked with a coastal engineering firm or have uh, been in local government and, and managed or touched uh, or studied a, a coastal engineering type of project. What, what is the, uh, the breadth, if you will? What is the spectrum of projects that you work on? Sure. Well, the, the coastal engineering field can be very broad because it's studying the nearshore environment, the processes of wind waves and tides and currents, storms, and how they affect our shorelines and our ecosystems, which of course are where the fresh and the salt water meet. And we have the most diverse ecosystems in our country uh, well, in terms of the Mississippi Delta and, and Southwest Florida. So we are in prime position for ecosystem restoration and ecosystem management, which has a very big environmental flair. So the coastal engineering profession works day after day, hand in hand with environmental scientists, wetlands, ecologists, biologists. We work with planners because you have to plan these projects. So talking to both of you, we've had the pleasure of working together, dating back with Peter back to 2001 on a planning study in Charlotte and Sarasota County. And 
Of course, the engineering side of things, we design our projects, for example, beach restoration, beach nourishment, which is the the art and science of finding compatible sand that is the same color, grain size, characteristics, and sense, smell, and taste, as I like to say, of the native beaches to try to maintain healthy beaches for a variety of purposes, storm damage reduction benefits, ecology and ecosystems, flora and fauna, the sea turtles, the shorebirds, and the other species that utilize the beach and dunes, marsh creation and wetland restoration. For example, in Louisiana, the Bear Islands have a back barrier marsh platform, and that's part of their whole geomorphic and ecologic form and function. And then the other component is navigation. So we have inlet management, where inlets are, of course, a, a means for ingress and egress for your vessel traffic, for navigation, a lot of federal channels, as well as state and locally maintained channels. There's a lot of canals, especially in Southwest Florida, that are dredged on a routine basis. That spoil is either used for, say, cover for landfill, if it doesn't have any characteristics of value property, or it might be used for upland development, or hopefully if it's has a, a sand component, it could be used for beneficial use, say for some kind of restoration, maybe a, uh, a beach project or the near shore disposal. If it's maybe not quite the right color or grain size, it could go in a sandbar off the beach that does have some then future benefit to a, a beach program. And lastly would be the element that we also are involved in heavily is the waterfront development and waterfront shoreline protection, for example, seawalls, rock revetments, marinas, piers, docks, boat ramps, and mooring fields. So in a nutshell, it's taking care of our beaches, our dunes, and our marshes, basically our barrier shorelines. It's uh, improving and maintaining navigation, and it's the marine structural waterfront component. And we're blessed to be working in all three of those large phases of our business plan. You know, you described it, uh, you mentioned the art and the science of coastal engineering, and I think that is such an appropriate mix of the technical, mathematical, modeling, engineering, design part of the profession, and then this much more subjective side that deals with the health of ecosystems and marshes a little bit more. I don't want to say they're not technical at all but you're dealing in an environment that is constantly changing, Michael. Um, as the president of Coastal Engineering Consultants, uh, do you have uh, biologists and, and ecosystem restoration specialists on your team? And how do, you, how do, how do your biologists and your, your scientists get along with your engineers? Well, we do. Well, Michael Stephen is a coastal geologist. As I mentioned, he's one of our co-founders, Chris Dane a coastal engineer, the other co-founder. So they blended science and engineering together from day one. And both of those were my, my mentors as I joined the firm in 93. And Michael taught me that, you know, engineering is a straight line, but geology is, is a, a meandering line. And so you gotta, gotta figure out how to make those two work together. And so we have biologists and we have wetland specialists that have worked with the firm for its infancy. And we do today. And so we have two biologists on full-time staff. And then we have one that's uh, semi-retired. And then Michael is semi-retired as well. So of our 22 staff complement, we have four staff that are heavily involved in the geology and ecology of our projects. Michael, when you began your uh, 
career as a, as a coastal engineer, uh, did you anticipate that you would be as deeply involved in environmental restoration projects as, as has turned out to be the case? Uh, because I'll just say that when we worked together, uh, Tyler and I, and uh, coastal engineering consultants in your firm on Minnesota Key, uh, I think a lot of people don't understand that the coastal engineering profession is is heavily involved in environmental management and environmental permitting. Uh, was that something that you came to understand? Is that changed over your career, or was that always part of what was expected in the profession? Something that was very, very new to me. I'm a farm boy from Amish country, Pennsylvania, so I landed at University of Delaware and fell in love with coastal engineering. They have a fantastic program there. And, but as a, as a coastal engineering student, while you talk about it, you don't really focus on it. You don't necessarily take a lot of classes and it's really not back in the, the early nineties when I was getting my master's degree, but that quickly changed as more projects became prevalent, more coastlines eroded. Uh, I know with the hurricane damages that ravaged Louisiana, like Katrina and Rita, and not long after that, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill brought a, a lot of attention to the environmental damage that was done. And so that definitely changed how we do our projects. Prior to those uh, catastrophes, uh, the islands being what they were in a degraded condition, there, there was very little need for protection and abatement for, say, shorebirds, nesting shorebirds and migratory birds. However, now that we've done numerous restoration plans and now we're doing renourishment of the islands, you have to do passive abatement and a lot of monitoring and, and protection measures for shorebirds because you're working during their nesting season and these birds are using these islands, albeit some of them have certainly have had some erosion to them and some degradation. But for the most part, there's at least some portion of the island that's intact that's hosting these these birds and or you have the wintering population that uses as as just foraging and resting for example red knots and and piping plovers so i've learned more about shorebirds than i ever thought i would ever need to uh, in terms of my profession and, and where i thought i'd be at this point in my career and that, that i can just parallel that with the geology of of a, of a deltaic system and the the inlets and and all of the as you said, at the onset of the project, I'm sorry, the onset of our interview was that we're in the most dynamic environment with the coastal engineering profession. And so with that same dynamics comes the environment and comes the geology of our systems. So yeah, I rarely am just putting an engineering hat on for the day. It's, it's a hat of many colors with environmental. Uh, there's also the soci social, socioeconomic, whatever the right term is there in terms of yeah. how do you pay for these projects and, and the benefits that these projects bring in order to qualify for funding. And then there's the institutional, the, the stakeholders, the residents, the beachfront property owners, the navigation and boating community, the committees, the environmental organizations. We spend countless hours on any large project having public meetings and public forums and stakeholder meetings and one-on-ones and and one of the best stories i like to tell is is back in one of my first beach projects in the mid 90s we were trying to get a construction easement from a beachfront property owner and he was a very well-respected doctor had been on the team that invented the vaccine for polio and he was convinced if i renourished his beach i was creating a ramp 
for Mother Nature to allow the Gulf of Mexico to rush right into his his uh, plus 20 first floor on the beachfront. And I said to him, well, let's talk about it. He had an aquarium in his house. And so I went over to the aquarium and I had little stones in the bottom. And so I scooped out a, a, a scoop of stones on the one side of the aquarium, which was my borrow area. And I moved the stones to this side of the aquarium, which was my beach. And I put those stones in, in the beach and raised that elevation of the beach a little bit. And I said, did I raise the elevation of the water level in your tank? And uh, he looked at me, he smiled, and he signed his easement. So, you know. That's um, well done. That's well those done. Those are the little, little, little great stories and tidbits of, of how you take uh, a very complicated project and, 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 and terminology and issues and try to, try to base it down to a level of, hey, you know what? What we're doing is, is just a small thumbprint of what Mother Nature uh, has in store for us. And so when we do beach restoration, we're not going to stop erosion. We're not going to um, necessarily change the outcome of, 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 a, of a system to the point where, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is we try to work in harmony with Mother Nature, but she is so powerful. And so we try to do things in a very pragmatic environmentally friendly manner that complements what's going on. And what we do is we look back in time, we look back at history, we look at what the system looked like before man got here and altered it or some other uh, event may have occurred that altered the system and see if we can't try to do things that achieve the goals that we want, but do so in a manner that's consistent with what mother nature would, would respect and, and allow us to do. And, but when we do beach restoration, we're translating that point of erosion seaward. We're moving the, the attack of the waves and energy offshore to try to reduce what's happening to the upland development and allow that beach to be in, in existence for some period of time, that summer nourishment cycle, so that we can enjoy the beach. We have it for recreational purposes and hopefully provide habitat for those turtles and birds and other species that use it. So, Yeah. And uh, man, there's a lot of great stuff there, uh, but... I got, you know, you're talking about University of Delaware as a kid. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a coastal engineering student. I, who's the Michael Jordan of coastal engineering, Michael? Oh, you're, you're talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm the Tom Brady of everybody, everybody who knows me knows I'm a Patriots fan. Not that I don't have any respect. I highly respect Michael Jordan as well, but, uh, yeah, now he's in Florida. You know, you can you so, can go see Tom. Well, I guess you well, know see him more. Yeah, I, I think I'll be watching like everybody else from home, unfortunately. But yes, I mean, in other so, words, um, so who who are the, who are the, who are the premier coastal yeah. scientists and engineers uh, that we have in the country? Well, the programs, and, and it's this is a, a change in. You talked about what's going to be the change in the profession. I'll say what's going on at the university level is there are a lot more programs have come on board with the recognition of the need for what we do. University of Delaware still is the premier institution. And I say that lovingly because it's my alma mater, but also when we have the International Coastal Engineering Conference, which is held every two years, and we get together on Delaware night, there's 70, 80, 90 of us alumni that are there at the dinner. And, and by far it's, it's the largest class of engineers and scientists in the coastal profession that get together. Not that there aren't some other large programs around too. University of Florida, 
Oregon State. There are some some of my best friends from from grad school have uh, taken that program to the next level. Texas A and M has a fantastic program. They've had a, a program in place for a very long time. But some of our professors have branched out, and some of our students have branched out, and so Virginia Tech has a program, and Notre Dame, and MIT, and John Hopkins, and now Northwestern, and Rhode Island. Um, I mean, there's University of Central Florida is is working on adding to the complement. Oh, yeah, University of University of North Florida, thanks to uh, Bruce Taylor and and the other folks that have donated to the to the university up there in the school and. Um, Tony Dalrymple, Jim Kirby uh, are some of the premier professors that were at Delaware and, and, and have moved to other places as well. Nobu Kobayashi, um, James Kayatu, Tuba Oskin, Mick Holler, Dan Cox, um, all friends of mine from Delaware that are now at these institutions. Um, but I mean, I could I could just can list I, can I follow you know, up? another half a dozen. Please, can I, I, I keep talking. So yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. <laughs> no I, I find this very interesting and. And, you know, we are aware that there's outstanding uh, work and that coastal engineering has changed a lot. All you got to do is look at the stuff that they were doing in the 50s and 60s and 70s compared to the stuff that they're doing today. It is a very different type of uh, activity. And uh, it's it really is, I think, because it's public, so much of this is publicly funded uh this it, it's it kind of is holding a mirror up to what our society at, at large wants to see um, it from the you know how, from how we manage these spaces and so uh, one of the things that I'm just curious about when you were going back to the early 90s when you were training is uh, any sort of changes in the approach that you have uh, seen over your career you know one thing that comes to example for uh, comes to mind as an example is uh, the use of computer modeling and data uh and you know peter and i on this show we, we talk about all the time you know how you know on this balance between you know kind of being very data centric data driven versus this more as as you said before this kind of art side of it where you know our our ability to uh, collect data and understand systems uh, purely numerically, purely through a, a mathematical model, uh, has limitations. And so, if you if you lean on that too far, maybe you miss some of of the intuitive. Do you do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. I actually was just talking with a good friend of mine from Delaware last night, John Ramsey, who's uh, applied coastal in Massachusetts, and we were talking about our, our undergraduate and graduate school days and how we learned the computer language Fortran for the very first time going to undergraduate college in high school. We hadn't had not had been any exposure of that because this was all just becoming uh, the computer um, desktops and things didn't exist. You know, you got to school and you would use a computer in a lab and you would print something out and come back a day later and hope that it, that the printout was there and it worked. And, so computers by far have changed how we do everything in terms of our lives. And, and with respect to coastal engineering, uh, I think it comes down to the fundamentals of you, you, you need to understand the fundamental theory of the coastal zone first and foremost. And you need to learn that without using computer simulations, just like um, if you're drawing your architectural plans, most people will now learn to do it on the computer, but it's better to learn to hand draw it first. So you truly understand what it is you're drawing. 
uh, and, and not just use a, a computer tool to, to get to your solution, the, the data collection and the instrumentation and the equipment used has come uh, leaps and bounds forward from the old days where it was lead line to running a favometer transducer survey that was basically uh, checked in through uh, eyesight as you check past certain survey poles and today where it's of course real-time kinematic global positioning systems lidar you know laser detection systems and uh, mounted on different vessels uh, it's just amazing the equipment that has come into our our practice and so we can collect so much more data but it still comes back to that fundamental theory of, of how mother nature works and how you're going to work with mother nature or against mother nature so when we run our computer models and our simulations, it's for another tool in the toolbox to go along with our professional judgment, our, our engineering and scientific minds and, and how we know things work. And it, it's a good tool to use to compare and contrast, say, different solutions, different restoration alternatives. It's not going to pinpoint uh, that I'm going to be able to maintain this navigation channel at minus 14 feet and it's going to allow my beach to be 32.5 feet wide because you can't do anything that's that precise. But what you can do is say, all right, if I were to do an advanced dredging project that I'm trying to extend the life of this dredging event and I'm going to have an impact on my adjacent beach, can I quantify what that impact is? And at what point does I, I dig too deep and I start to cause problems on the adjacent shoreline? You can use those tools to help guide you in those solutions and quantify potential benefits and impacts and and have it as a complement to just you know good solid engineering sense uh michael over your career as uh the sophistication of computer modeling has advanced and as you say the data rich uh, richness that is available now to coastal geologists coastal engineers in trying to determine the best approach to tackle a coastal problem, a coastal, say, erosion problem or a beach erosion problem. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your personal journey of encountering those models, applying those, making real-world engineering design decisions based off of that? How has your confidence in those systems of, of the data availability and the computer modeling, has that changed over, I don't know, say the last 10 years? Sure, sure, absolutely. The looking back at the data we collected ten years ago, and looking at the data we collected today, again we're collecting uh, exponentially more data for the same or less money because of the sophistication in the equipment and the accuracy of what we're collecting today is even better than it was ten years ago, and certainly mm -hmm. much better than it was thirty years ago. Yeah. So the fact that you're able to collect so much more data only helps reinforce the engineering assignments that you take with the computer simulations and the models and, and having collecting multiple data sets, which is what, if you really want to run a, a computer model, we call it calibration and validation. So if you want to understand how the system has changed over time and you're using a computer model to simulate that, then you better have had measured those changes so you can then calibrate and validate your model. Right. So that when you're doing predict predictions with that model, you feel a reasonable certainty that the predictions are reliable. And mm -hmm. so that's that's the main difference is you're collecting 
much more high quality data, uh, a, a lot more data, and you're collecting it more frequently to allow for those true calibrations and validations to support your modeling. And then the sophistication of the models themselves, being able to have more high powered computers allows you to do the computation so much faster. Years ago, you couldn't run some of these models for a whole system, whereas you could maybe you could run it for maybe one island and you might be able to get a 30 day simulation done and it would take a week's time yeah. for the computer simulation to run. And you hope that you didn't have a bust in your data because then you had to start over again and run it for the next week and the next week. And now we can run simulations uh, of 30 days or 12 months or 20 years in a matter of hours or days. And then, so you, now you can analyze a lot more alternatives. Yeah. Uh, you might be able to tell your client 10 years ago, I can only analyze two alternatives because it's going to take me six weeks to calibrate and then six weeks to run the model for two alternatives. And, and by that time, whatever, whatever we tried to save has already been eroded away. So you, you, nowadays it's, it's, as I say, more, such much more efficient, much more power computing power available. The, uh, the simulations that can be done on wave environments and shoreline change over time are really incredible. One of my favorite things about ASBPA is to go uh, look at the latest uh, outputs. But what I wanted to, uh, to ask is, is has the, do you think that the, the decision making, uh, well, let's, let, let's, let's help our audience understand these models. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, talk to our audience and Michael, we, I know you're really good at this when you're dealing with the public a lot in the public workshops that we used to do together, explaining complex engineering and complex modeling to the general public. Uh, tell our, tell our uh, audience about modeling, how it is used in, uh, in coastal uh, design. Uh, teach us a little bit about that. Sure. I'll use the Minnesota Key Project. Since that one's near and dear to our hearts, it's a, a beach project on Englewood Beach, which is both Charlotte and Sarasota counties, Southwest Florida on the Gulf. It's one of the few developed shorelines in Florida that's never had a beach restoration project. And so we had to set out to design the quote unquote perfect beach fill. And I say perfect in that what's, what's perfect for Minnesota Key may not be perfect somewhere else. And so we wanted to restore the beach. We wanted to do it in a cost efficient fashion. We wanted to make sure that we were providing enough sand that would provide that buffer from storms, would recreate the sea turtle habitat and the shorebird habitat that has been lost over time. And what we found was because the beach was in such an eroded condition, there was existing hard bottom, which is exposed limestone on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico in the near shore zone, just hundreds of feet off the beach. And because the beach had not been maintained and restored, this hard bottom had become uncovered and now it's an environmental sensitive habitat. It's a home for sponges and other benthic and other uh, critters. And so it is a protected resource. And so we had to first and first demonstrate that there was no way to design and sustain a beach fill of any size or magnitude without impacting this hard bottom. And so we ran a cross shore sediment transport model S beach. It's a common tool used in the industry. It was developed through a variety of great scientists in our uh, in our history, and so it's a model that allows you to generate a a series a storm tide series and, and run waves. In essence, uh, has a, a means to do it 
through a hydrograph and you input the sediment characteristics and it gives you a cross-shore change in profile in the wake of a storm. And that's one tool we use to look at, well, does this beach provide the protection that we want for our beach? And so you pick a certain magnitude storm that you talk about with your client and say, all right, what, what is the level of, of storm protection that we want to provide? And we simulate that and, and we measure the erosion well, we predict the, the amount of erosion and hopefully we have done a good job in our design. And then we look at some other factors. We look at uh, not just the cross shore direction, but the longshore transport. We look at how the profile is going to adjust. And basically your beach is, is about seven eighths underwater. If you think about an iceberg and how much of it is underwater supporting that, that structure above the water, same thing with the beach. And typically on these uh, severely eroded beaches, the underlying foundation of the beach has been gone. It's been eroded. It's sediment deprived. So we have to restore a significant part of the beach underwater, and it's not very cost affordable to do that. So we have our dredge contractors build our beaches. They pump them in place, knowing that a lot of that sand will move underwater. We'll, we'll, we call it equilibration. The profile will equilibrate over time to its natural angle of repose and, and fill in the underlying portion of the foundation of the beach. All of those things get taken into account, and there are models. And I said I gave you one example of S Beach on how that uh, can help us in terms of the storm level. And so we we put all these factors together into your beach fill design and come up with this is what we believe is the the right amount of sand to put on the beach that's going to have the the goals and objectives set forward that we establish with the clients. In this case, the counties and the beachfront owners with a budget, and and off we go. And so. Hopefully that answered your question, at least in, in yeah. one little case study. Well, I, th I think it does. And uh, I guess so I want to follow up one more question. This is not specific to Minnesota Key. And then I think we do want to talk about kind of some of the projects and that you're working on and, and some of the real world examples here. But um, back to this notion of data, when we were at the ASBPA uh, conference, uh, it was the first time this past year that uh, I started to hear the term machine learning uh, coming into the the concept of coastal engineering. Is this something that you, when you're talking to your college buddies and think, thinking about uh, leading coastal engineering consultants forward, uh, are y'all exploring the what machine learning can do for you guys? I mean... And, you know, what are the applications of machine learning with coastal engineering? I know that we are, quote unquote, data rich. Like you said, we have drones and LADAR technology. And I mean, we can just gather a lot more data now so we, we can monitor the real physical world more accurately, I would say. But what we do with that data and how we uh, how we manage it and and crunch it <laughs> That becomes the problem. How are what's what's the trend here going forward? Well, I gotta be honest with you. That's a, a new term for me, machine learning. So I'm I'm a I'm rookie. I can't even say I'm a rookie and not a novice. So um, I just googled it just to see what it meant while you were talking. So I, I cheated so I could see what it meant. So um, you know, you surprised me with all the modeling questions. So uh, I, I, yeah, have a all, brilliant I have a brilliant scientist with me who does a lot of our modeling, but the, this machine learning and, and uh, 
algorithms through experience. I got to say, I'm going to punt on that one, guys. That's not my yeah, forte. Yeah, that's okay. That's <laughs> totally right. fine. Well, it's cutting edge. But Michael, let's I'm talk a, about... I will learn more about it, so I'll be prepared next time. <laughs> let's talk about uh, Manasota Key a little bit. And for the listeners out there, Tyler and I, in our time as consultants, were retained by uh, Charlotte County. And our job was to uh, put in place the local financing mechanisms to pay for the project that Michael was designing and as he mentioned, this was a, a stretch of shoreline, I think about six miles or so, uh, that hadn't been nourished in the past. One of the most beautiful parts of the, of the Florida coast, I think, uh, quaint, gorgeous, beautiful, uh, but suffering from erosion, and people were getting nervous. There had been some structures lost. Uh, the county had desired to respond to the problem, um, and uh, Michael, as I said, we, we, we were dealing with the politics of it. How do we raise the money? How do we increase taxes locally to pay the bill and to uh, pay for the project that you and your team uh, were designing? Um, my understanding is the project was recently completed. Uh, I have not been back to see it. Can you give us an update on how it all turned out? Absolutely. It was fantastic at the end of the day, but there was a... a a lot of work had to go into it. So that's uh, tick back the clock in 2001 to 2003, we worked together on a two county study. Charlotte and Sarasota partnered up with the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and the West Coast Inland Navigation District and did a two county beach erosion study. Out of that came planning areas and beach field designs and Minnesota Key was one of them, but they chose not to act on it. Fast forward to 2015 and there has been a significant amount of erosion there's a large rock revetment that extends about one mile into Charlotte County, and it had been exposed along its entire route, and there was a very little dry beach, and there was a, a downdrift impact occurring from that rock revetment, and the beach south of the rock revetment started to erode as well. So the property owners and the businesses and stakeholders went to the commission and said, we need to get into the beach management program, and so the county came to us, and we put a team together and so we went out and did our due diligence, our feasibility study, brushed off the old study and updated everybody with, here's what it's going to cost to do this. And by the way, there's uh, several acres of hard bottom that will have to be mitigated that it will cost a, a small fortune and take us two years or more to permit as we design a mitigation strategy to offset the impact. And so we worked with some fantastic Player Cheryl Miller with Coastal Eco Group, John Sullivan and Ocean Seismic Survey, and Steve Schmidt and Christopher Goodwin and yourselves, Park with the financing plan, and Mike Barnett and Tetra Tech helped us out with some of the immediate needs for uh, temporary stabilization measures along Minnesota Key and uh, in prior phases, Rick um, Horgan with Sonographics and um, Lucy and her team with uh, with AVS. So we had a great team of people working. So we could locate high quality offshore sand and we could get that beach design. Dr. Vadim Alamov, my scientist, did the modeling and the and the design as I described in our in our prior conversation. And and I gotta give credit to the staff of Charlotte County and the, the staff of Sarasota County. Too many people to name, but I'll name the project managers, Matt Logan with Charlotte County and Rachel Herman and Joe Krause with Sarasota County and the two administrations and the two counties, because this is to to, to my knowledge. The first one, although there may have been others, but uh, 
certainly in Southwest Florida, the first time two counties did a regional beach project together and Sarasota County deferred to Charlotte because Charlotte came out of the gate in 2015 and Sarasota jumped in a few years later, but, but basically they signed an interlocal agreement and said, let's trust each other to get this done and figure out how to pay for it later. And let's permit it. Let's get funding from the state and let's go get it done. And, and so every step of the way, they trusted our team. They trusted you guys. They trusted each other. And that's just a remarkable partnership. And yeah. so kudos to everybody. And so we, we lined up the, the state permit was issued in May of 2019 with a mitigation strategy to build a $7 million artificial reef in the near shore waters out in about 20 feet of water to mitigate the hard bottom, the beach project cost was 30 million for the sand. And so $37 million price tag, two counties, 1.2 million yards of sand. We identified at least five near shore sand shoals that could be used. And Great Lakes Dredge and Dock was the low bidder. The project was awarded in December. The Corps of Engineers issued their permit in January. Great Lakes mobilized in February, began construction on March 2nd. So the first grains of sand arrived in Minnesota Key ever on March 2nd. They finished pumping sand on Minnesota Key uh, the end of April. They were delayed uh, demobilizing because we had some bad weather. Um, I jokingly say that they took uh, Minnesota Key just the way the Corps and our, uh, our veterans took uh, Normandy when they stormed it. They brought the ramp barge in, dropped it in place, offloaded the equipment, almost sunk a dozer in 12 feet of water in, in doing so. But wow. they persevered. They, they, there was very little dry beach to even even stage their equipment. So that was a, a challenge that they're not used to doing. In Louisiana, we do it by ramp barge all the time. But Florida, typically you can drive up to the beach, offload your equipment and your pipe and go to work. Here we brought it all in by, by sea. Um, it was uh, a total of about 4.4 miles was the net length of beach. There were some uh, opponents to the project that uh, on the beachfront owners that did not want the project. So each each county had its own gap in the erosion control line and in the beach fill. And that, that could be a whole topic for a whole conversation in their time. Yes. Um, ultimately, we had uh, the majority of folks bought into the project, bought into the funding plan. The sand was gorgeous. We were very blessed uh, with our team that put together the, the bar area plans, uh, myself included. But of course, all those subs that I mentioned uh, was great seashelling. We had, we've gotten some fantastic shells. Um, and so we, the other thing we did is we, we partnered with the, the Charlotte County Beach Program was already in place. So we, when I say truly regional, then we, we added a third beach fill segment so that we could build three beach fill segments under the same mobilization. It's the beaches that uh, Front Knight Island and Don Pedro Island just south of Stump Pass. And so at the end of the day, we did another 300,000 yards. Uh, some of that was FEMA post-storm recovery dollars from Debbie and from Irma. And so ultimately we had federal FEMA money, state money, Sarasota County, Charlotte County, all pulling their resources. Uh, the South Beach fill was completed in June. And so we're wrapping up the post-construction surveys, monitoring, reporting and everything. And uh, bottom line is it was a huge success. The project came in right on budget. Uh, we were within like $50,000 of the estimate on the sand and they were a little bit under on the, on the reef. Uh, the reef will begin construction hopefully next week. They're here in town. They've, uh, the rocks are uh, in, in great stockpile. Um, Cayo is uh, the, the contractor who do the reef. I, I think I failed to mention Great Lakes Dredge and Dock. I think I did mention them, but if I didn't, they were the dredge contractor. Mm -hmm. They used uh, two of their small hopper dredges to dredge the sand shoal and come into near shore waters to pump out. 
So it was just a really, really, truly uh, fantastic project. I thank both counties for, for trusting us and definitely a signature project in, in our in our corporate history. So Very cool to have worked on it. Uh, what was the total cubic yardage, Michael? Yeah, 1.25 million yards total for the whole project. So 880,000 no or so big, on Minnesota Key, and then sign. the rest of it was on the, uh, the, the Night Island Don Pedro segment. You know, for the listeners out there who don't uh, often think about or read about coastal uh, restoration projects or specifically uh, dune and uh, beach restoration projects, beach fills, I wanted to, you mentioned the price of the project was $30 million to to secure and, and, and move 1.25 million cubic yards of sand onto the beach over about four and a half miles, somewhere around $30 million. And then an additional $7 million to offset uh, that the fact that the sand was going to cover this nearshore limestone outcrops that exist along this beach. And I want to talk about this mitigation, Michael. Uh, it was very controversial with the public when Tyler and I were in public meetings explaining how much people's taxes were going to be increased. Uh, and we let them know that a significant amount of money needed to be spent uh, to restore this rock habitat. Uh, it was controversial. And uh, in your opinion, looking at it now, and I, I can't wait to see this reef when it's done. Uh, as you say, the construction is just starting. Can you describe uh, for our uh, listeners what a mitigation reef is? What is it made out of? What's the purpose? How do you deploy it? Tell, t talk to us about that. Sure. When I talk about mitigation, the easiest example is to use wetlands. If you're doing a, a development, because a lot of people are familiar with this, and that is if you have a piece of land and there's some wetlands and you fill those wetlands in order to do the development that you want to do, then you have to either recreate those wetlands or you purchase credit in a mitigation bank that's already been established by the state or local governments in partnership with a, a landowner where they already have put in conservation uh, equal quality wetlands or even higher quality wetlands. So when you're talking about the nearshore hard bottom, there's all levels of quality. And so Coastal Ecosystems Group, Coastal Eco Group, Cheryl Miller and her team did extensive surveys, diver surveys of the hard bottom to characterize the quality of it and what's living on it so that we could try to, in essence, replicate that. Well, the challenge though is, is that this, habitats in, in eight to 10 feet of water. And that's every foundation of every beach is, is, is sand that you want to have. So you can't go and create exactly eight to 10 feet of hard bottom anywhere along our coast without interrupting somebody else's beach project. So the agencies recognizing that work with the consulting firm. And so we end up creating a habitat that will provide high quality opportunity for species that operate and live and and, uh, and thrive in the environment in 20 feet to 22 feet of water, which is just off of Minnesota Key. So it's about 1,000 feet, 1,500 feet seaward of the beachville. And there are existing hard bottom outcroppings in the area. And so we're going to maintain buffers around those areas. So we've had to map those with uh, divers that have transmitters up to the vessels. So they're getting accurate GPS positions as they swim the near shore edge. That gets uploaded into the contractor's um, navigation system on their barge so they can see the existing hard bottom so they know that they are supposed to avoid it. 
We create about a 50 to 75 foot buffer from where we're going to deploy the reef. And basically it's, it's as uh, straightforward as it sounds, they're going to place one rock at a time, side by side, through a pattern, through multiple acres of hard bottom to, cre cre to create a hard substrate, a hard bottom face by which those critters and benthics and other uh, types of fish species and sponges and what have you that live in this area will then, in essence, populate onto our reef. When you say and that so, it's a it's a rock, um, we're talking about uh, large blocks of limestone. What are they? Two or three feet square? I mean, can you tell what is what is a hard? Yeah, bottom basically, a f about four foot stone on average. That uh, there's a quarry statewide materials up in Titusville that has a rock quarry that our contractor was able to negotiate a good price and put in the bid. So they're they're trucking those rocks that are basically uh, excavated out of the quarry. They're loading them on trucks, trucking them over to Tampa to a staging area. And then they're going to load up their barge and then bring those rocks down uh, through the Gulf to our sites. And they're going to use their equipment to then place those rocks one at a time. They have a rotating arm on their crane that's going to be able to set those rocks down. They have video technology and they... If they have to, they'll put a diver in the water. Uh, they're hoping they don't have to do that, but, the, but sometimes I've heard mm -hmm. that they do that on, on these reefs. This is the first time we've done one. Southwest Florida uh, has has its share of hard bottom areas, but the projects that we've done, fortunately, haven't really had to do with covering hard bottoms. This is our first time, which is why we brought in Cheryl and her team because of their expertise in it. And so it'll be certainly a, a learning experience for us too, but and we've done a lot of rock work with our structures and things, but not... We have not built a, a mitigation reef specifically for this purpose. Yeah. So they're going to lay these boulders in. There's about 12 inches on average of sand over underlying rock. So the, the rocks will settle. These four-foot stones will settle, uh, ultimately providing about two to three feet of relief, uh, which is what the relief is out there on these existing exposed hard bottom surfaces. And so in a few years, you won't, won't know so much the difference between what we built and what's next to it. So. Did you, uh, how many acres of mitigation reef did you have to deploy? So in, in terms of, we had, we had 2.4 net acres of impact, which means if you take out all the void spaces, we had 2.4 and we have to create 3.6 net. So it's about a, a 1.5 ratio, um, but you can't, you can't get a solid surface, nor do we want a solid surface. So um, we've permitted about a six acre area for them to put these rocks in to net at least 3.6 acres. I'm sorry, 3.9, excuse me. Sorry, it's 3.9 acres. Wow. Well, that's, you know, you're you're building a uh you're building, we're calling it a mitigation reef, but it's it's just like, you know, when we did the show in the San Onofre nuclear power plant. I mean, you're these are artificial kind of man-made uh mitigation reefs. Very cool, Michael, that you guys are doing that. Uh I know we want to take a trip around the Gulf over to Louisiana, but before we do, I have one final question in Minnesota Key. We received a phone call, kind of a, I would say kind of a desperate phone call uh, from Damien Oshab, who's the uh, South Minnesota Key Property Owners Association president, who we became quite familiar with. A very we, good guy. When we were working down there. And uh, he mentioned he was saying people were freaking out the beach has gone away uh apparently there were some big waves or some there was some storm activity and the beach had settled 
Michael, would you, uh, and I know Damien's a listener, so he'll appreciate this, and I'm sure he'll share it with his uh, members, but what happened there when the beach shape changed uh, during the storm? Sure. Well, we, had, we need to back up and talk about the, the construction of the beach. And in, in as I said during our discussions, that's about seven-eighths of the beach is underwater. And so we've shared with the property owners and stakeholders and of course, Damien is a, is a fantastic champion for Minnesota Key and has helped us educate his neighbors and what have you. So the beach is going to be on average 50 feet wide, plus about eight years of background erosion. It's about two feet per year. So eight times two is 16 plus 50 is about 66 feet wide. And to, to, to achieve 60 feet wide, we built the beach about 100 feet wide, knowing that a huge chunk of sand is going to move underwater. When Great Lakes was constructing the project, because of how good the sand was, I can't take credit for that necessarily, but, but the high-quality sand, uh, the bulldozers were having trouble filling the lower part of the template. And so we did a uh, what we call compensating slope, which allowed them to overbuild the upper part of the beach, knowing that Mother Nature will take it underwater. So that 100-foot-wide beach ended up being about 120 feet wide, uh, with, the, with the toe of the, of the beach fill being underfilled. So when the first big storm came through, which we had Tropical Storm Crystal Ball come through, um, the beach went to, uh, to equilibrium and, and partial equilibrium very, very quickly. So we lost, I say lost, that, that sand shifted to the lower part of the profile, filling in the toe, plus we started to have equilibrium. And so what looked like an amazingly wide beach of 120 feet is now getting closer to 66 feet wide, which is what it's supposed to be, and it happened very quickly. So... Um, we, we and, and that's instead ourselves an injustice by having an extra wide beach uh, the day the contractor left. It looked extra wide, and everybody's like, ah, I, I never imagined it was going to be this wide. And I'm like, please don't get used to it. It's not going to stay that way very long. And a couple of weeks later, it was not that wide anymore. So And they got used to it. Well, yeah, they got spoiled by it. And, <laughs> um, and, and uh, it, was, it was very soft. And so that's the other thing is, is, is trying to build the beach with hydraulic placed sand so this the sand is coming in through a slurry it's about 20 percent solid 80 percent water and so and right at the at the water line you have of course the the wave and tides and currents operating and, and acting on this plus we have to till the beach which means we go through with a a huge piece of uh you know for lack of a better term a farm a farm rake like you would plow a field we actually plow our beaches so soften that sand for sea turtle nesting and so it loosens the sand and so right at the water line, it becomes like almost like quicksand. And there's about a, a two foot, you, you stuck your foot in there and you, you lose about two feet. So people, when they say they, the beach settled, in essence, the water drained out of it. And, and, and so there was, there was this appearance of a, of a loss of sediment. Um, the sand is there. We've, we've measured it. It's all there. It's, it's falling out at the same slope we predicted it would fall out. We have the profiles that show that, that we haven't lost the sand. A lot of it's moved actually from south to north, which is not the normal transport direction, uh, but Cristobal uh, moved a lot of sand from south to north. So there are some beachfront property owners at the north end of our project in Sarasota County. Smiling. Have a pre pretty wide beach right now that didn't have any sand before we started. They were outside of the fill limit. They didn't want to sign their easements. And so, but now they have a pretty good chunk of sand because Cristobal moved that sand northward. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a dynamic that occurs. Now, once the winter time comes in and we got our, our, uh, fronts out of the north, that sand's going to move back down south again. So what I've promised the people is that uh, tomorrow the beach is going to look different than it does today. 
<laughs> as I like to say, uh, final design by God. You know, the thing is that, and, and this is there an important, go. it's an important, uh, what I want to, before we move over to Louisiana, because I really want to talk about Terrebonne Basin Barrier Shoreline Restoration, uh, Michael, but uh, this was, as you said, from 2015 to 2020, uh, Minnesota Keys Project uh, came back onto line uh, the design process, the permitting, the funding, all of the environmental investigations, the mitigation reef, which is still a uh, component of the project, which is still underway. Uh, it's about six, seven years of concerted effort and work. Uh, the level of engagement with the community, as you said, the public, the beachfront owners, the off-beach owners, the boating community. Uh, the political leadership in in the counties, the the great work to get Charlotte and Sarasota County working together as a regional project. I just want the listeners to understand that when uh, when we're talking about coastal engineering here, uh, we are talking about a profession that is incredibly broad in uh, the level of skill required in so many disciplines to successfully execute a project like Minnesota Key. And I, I throw that out, Michael, because it bothers me sometimes when people say, hell, all you want to do is throw sand on the beach. There isn't anything about this. This is only about, you know, throwing sand on the beach. The level of sophistication, the environmental sensitivity, the investment in the health of the ecosystem, it's really an extraordinary uh, profession, and I, I'm very proud that we were a small part, uh, contributing part of that Minnesota Key uh, project. And and uh, I'm really hope we, uh, man, when when we're able to travel, I'd love to go see it. And I sure want to go snorkeling on that reef uh, when that gets look, installed. I think it's going to be really look forward cool. to it. We'll, we'll we'll go have a cocktail with Damien, <laughs> and then uh, right. and then we'll put our uh, our fins on and we'll we'll snorkel out to the reef and. It's going to be get our float, get our floaties and just go out there and float. That's and, uh, right. That's sounds right. lovely. Look forward to it. Well, I, I, I jokingly say it's just cut and fill. You know, we're just moving dirt from one place yeah, to the other. All. But but it is. It is an intricate, fantastic career. It's the greatest job in the world. I get to go to the beach. I get to go play in the marsh, crawl in the mud. I get to go um, snorkel, dive, whatever. You know, there's so many fun things we get to do. And it's, just, it's different every day. There There is nothing repetitive about this career at all. And so I encourage anyone in in the interest of engineering science math and physics geology you know whatever you might yeah. have a passion for if it's close to that check out the coastal engineering and sciences cuz there's great job security it's a great great opportunity for a really fun fantastic career so I couldn't agree more, and I have such so much respect for the coastal engineering profession and so many of the professionals that I've had a chance to work with over the years Let's take a, a, a tour and go um, over west from uh, Florida over to Louisiana in a project that uh, Coastal Engineering Consultant has Consultants has been working on for some time. It's called the Terrebonne Basin Barrier Shoreline Restoration. And uh, Michael, uh, introduce our audience to this project, if you would, if you would, please. Sure, I'd love to. So. The, uh, the Ildeneers and Terrebonne Islands are one segment of Louisiana's barrier island chain. It's one of the delta systems of the Mississippi. And these islands are uh, it's truly unique uh, to, I think, to our country in terms of the 
ecosystems and and what they what they possess and provide. And I could I could talk all day about the Bear Islands of Louisiana. I, I tease people. I say I'm I'm half Amish, half Floridian, and half Cajun because I've spent since 2002 a big chunk of my professional career helping uh, restore Louisiana's Bear Islands one island at a time. And these islands have experienced a lot of degradation through anthropogenic and mother nature's influences and impacts and, and they need our assistance and our help. And we've been, we've been doing it. And the state of Louisiana has been working on the restoration of islands back dating back to the early to mid nineties. And so the islands of Ile Denier and Timbalier and the West Bell Headland have all had projects, restoration projects done on them at least one time. And so we've been blessed to be part of this Terrebonne system. We, CEC, were the engineering lead on an integrated consulting team, SJB Group of Baton Rouge was the prime. And we worked with the state of Louisiana and the Corps of Engineers, New Orleans District on a feasibility study and integrated environmental impact statement between 2008 and 2010. We did one in record time. In two years, we wrote a seven island billion dollar 50 year restoration plan for the Terrebonne Islands. Wow, and that is which record in, time. Which include and we had to. It was it was a mandate by the by the federal government. The, they appropriated these dollars and said you have got to get it done and have the chief's report signed by 2010. Um, that was one of the WERDA acts. And so we did it. We we accomplished that goal and it, it laid out the the restoration plan for the future of these islands. And so we just completed the Cayu Lake Headlands Restoration Project. It was the largest project by volume that the state's done. 10 million yards on one island, Whiskey Island, part of the Ildenir chain. And on the cusp of that, we were able to continue to work with the state through a, a partnership we had with Montgomery Watson, who was bought out by Stantec. It was started as the East Timberlear Island Restoration Plan. And East Timberlear Island is one of the islands on the the eastern side of this particular deltaic mm -hmm. system. And so, unfortunately, it has gotten to the point where it's so degraded, it's it's been broken up into multiple islands. It has a huge oil and gas exploration facility and pipeline canals, and there was very little actual ecosystem left. And so the state made the decision to transfer that money into a, a different uh, mode of, of ecosystem restoration. These are funds that they... Let me obtained uh, in the wake of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill for specifically for Bear Island restoration. Okay, let me let me just kind of, let's contrast this a little bit because we were talking about Manasota Key and Don Pedro Night Island over there in Charlotte and Sarasota County, uh, which are kind of what I would say most people would understand to be a typical barrier island that is occupied by beachfront houses and and residential. Uh, you know, condominiums, hotels, restaurants, all of that kind of stuff. Now we come over here to Louisiana, and we're out in the Mississippi River Delta. Uh, if we go to these islands, uh, uh, Michael, is there anybody living on these things? No, no, my friend. Good point. So yeah. these are, are undeveloped bare islands. Now, they do have Grand Isle, which is which is developed in uh and Conway Headland does have the oil and gas, but right. uh, the rest of the Bar Island chain is completely undeveloped. Maybe yeah. a few camps here and there, but uh, they're undeveloped islands. They 
were created as part of the Delta Egg processes, which again, I could spend uh, days talking about with yeah. you, but we don't have time for that. So just hit the highlights and that is they migrate. These islands actually migrate landward uh, in, the, in the direction of natural sand transport, Okay. typically from the east to the west. And it's part of the natural barrel in progress of the deltaic system as it uh, gets abandoned in the new delta platform and well, uh, begins. And so, so here you are on these, these thin veneers of sand over top of the Mississippi muds that were deposited thousands of years ago. So here we are, and you said these are, they're, the state of Louisiana is committing billions of dollars to the maintenance of these uninhabited barriers that are out here in the Mississippi River Delta. Why, uh, Michael, I think people would ask, why the hell do we care if, if, a, <laughs> if a small sandbar that out, out in the Mississippi Delta disappears under the waves? Why do... Uh, we and why does the state of Louisiana invest so heavily in the maintenance of this barrier island system? Sure. Well, it's the first line of defense from from storms, and so these barrier islands are protecting the fragile ecosystems of our whole deltaic plain. And these ecosystems, as I said, are one of the most unique and fabulous places on our in our country. Uh, twenty to twenty five percent of the domestic oil and gas products is coming out of Louisiana, out of these systems. And so the islands do provide uh, protection from that regard. So if people ask why, what's the economic benefit, there's a direct cost to benefit. Um, but, but more importantly, I think, is the environmental benefit. And it's hard to quantify that in terms of dollars and cents. But the, the shellfish, the seafood, the oysters, the ecosystems, the quality of life um, that we're all grown accustomed to, um, in terms of our fresh seafood and the fishing and recreational values, and then the migratory birds. So we come back to the birds. Here's a commonality, and that is the these Louisiana islands are stopovers for these migratory birds. And there's there's huge nesting colonies, like just thousands and thousands of least terns and plovers that are nesting and black skimmers. And um, then you have the uh, gosh, I could go on and on. So I'll just pause because there's just so many things I could share. There's a lot of them. Is, is coming up here of the okay. essence. So long story short, the, the ecosystem restoration value is 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 priceless. So that's why we restore these islands. It's 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 we have to. There we don't have a choice. Yeah, agreed. And I would love you've you've planted the seed. I would love to do just a whole show on the that the deltaic system. i I'm into it. And the plane, very cool. Uh, Mississippi River is as American as apple pie. <laughs> it might even be more American than apple pie. It's the Mississippi well, we'll, River. We could put a panel together because because uh, I have I've been studying it for a long time, but there there are a lot more brighter individuals than I that can tell you the better story than well, I can it, tell you. It's so, it's uh, it's underappreciated just how uh, connected our geology is, and when you're talking about. Uh, the Mississippi River and the amount of material that is being moved through that system and then deposited along the Louisiana shoreline. It is really cool to think about. But I would like to ask you, Michael, uh, my final question, I think, for this interview is going to be about the differences from an engineering perspective between Manasseh, Manasota Key, where you have a developed situation, um, and to Louisiana where you're working out there doing these kind of un now on the one hand, I would say, well, God, it's gotta be easier because you don't have people. I mean, people are hard, <laughs> uh, you know, cause they make, they, they're squeaky wheels and they, they can file complaints with the 
local elected officials and but uh tell like what's it like working out there uh from an engineering perspective uh i i imagine that like i imagine the quantities of fill are much bigger um is it harder to find the material to place talk about just some of these kind of broad differences well, yes, yeah, certainly that first and foremost is you don't have people living on the islands, but, but you do have landowners. And so we've actually had landowners refuse to sign their agreements with the state. And so we've had to carve out pieces of our island restoration plan um, and not put any fill there because they refuse. So that that's a commonality. You wouldn't think that's the case, but um, the, the mindset of restoration in Louisiana is, is so different than it is in Florida. We have the, uh, the ecosystem restoration goals, which trump a lot of things. And so we know that at the end of the day, there's going to be a new island when we're done. And most of the time, it's so degraded. There's very little structure left. We're rebuilding the beach and the dune and the marsh. So you're right. The economy of scale, as I mentioned, Whiskey Island, the last one we just did is 10 million cubic yards. Minnesota Key is 1.2 million. Um, so it's a whole order of magnitude. The, the width of the beach is about 400 to 600 feet. And the width of the marsh platform is over 1,000 feet. So just the, the total scale of the project is, is significantly greater. As far as the sentiment goes in the, in the Terrebonne, Ildenir system, there's a relic sand shoal, ship shoal, which is another former deltaic uh, deposit that is now in 18 to 25 feet of water. And there's like over a billion yards of sand available in this shoal deposit, but it's carved up by all the oil and gas. So you can't get to all billion yards, nor would we want to take all billion yards because there's a lot of ecosystem value in that habitat as well. So we carve out these little niches for our projects. Now, if you go to the east, the, uh, the, the sand is, is less plentiful in the near shore and offshore. There are no big shoal systems like we have ship shoals. So we've been using riverine sand to do projects now. And so that's a very high quality and renewable sand source coming out of the Mississippi River and actually transporting it. Peter had mentioned about Schofield Island, I think, at one point here in our conversation, and that was one of the projects we did. The first time sand was taken from the Mississippi River and used for a barrel and restoration project, 22 miles of pipe. There were four boosters, and uh, they were pumping about 50,000 yards a day onto the island. It was wow. just a phenomenal, phenomenal miles. thing to see. That's incredible. Now, the, the ship shoal transport, uh, the Kamenata headland, one of the projects we did, was a 30-mile nautical one-way trip. So that was done with scow barges and hopper dredges. So the transportation distance is significantly greater to get the sediment to, but, but that's, that's for Southwest Florida. I know that there are projects on the East coast of Florida where they have large transport distances too. So that's not necessarily uh, mm -hmm. a unique thing to Louisiana, but certainly the average transport distance is much higher for Louisiana. So the Terrebonne project, uh, as I mentioned, we did the feasibility study. We did Whiskey Island, the first increment of construction. So now we're doing, some renourishments of three islands that uh, had been previously restored by the state, uh, Trinity Island, Timberland Island, and West Bell Headland. Each one had gotten a project. Trinity was back in the late 90s. Timberland was around 2005, actually right before Katrina. They finished the dune plantings after Katrina, and then West Bell Headland was done in 2010. 
so that we uh, taking the money from the East Timberlier project, $150 million, and we designed three renourishment plans for these islands. Each one's getting several million yards. It's being done under one construction contract with Weeks Marine. So they're currently, well, they had to, uh, they pulled in for the storm in the Gulf right now, but they, they had been actively working on West Bell Headland. They were making fantastic progress. Uh, so they have the little, little downtime here for the storm as it passes. Hopefully it'll be a non-event for everybody and everybody stays safe and they'll be back at it again. Then they're going to use a uh, cutter head. They're using scow barges right now to do West Bell because of the distance involved. Um, Trinity is about a 12, I think it's about 12 mile pump from ship shoal at its closest point. So they're going to actually direct pump Trinity using wow. their cutter head dredge and then Timbalier They'll probably come back to use the scow barges for Timberlier next year. So Incredible. it's just a, another fantastic opportunity for these islands. And instead of them getting to a point where they're so degraded, you're starting over again, the state is, is using these funds very proactively to plug in some, some weaker parts of the islands to prevent breaching, to restore the geomorphic form and function and the eco ecological habitats and it's just these are projects of national significance they they are protecting infrastructure they are providing that storm surge reduction as these uh, storms come across uh, the beach and bear islands and across the marshes and of course uh, the the fishing and the the, the ecosystem recreational values are, are priceless as i mentioned so yeah we're very privileged to be part of of what louisiana is doing and, um, and I could talk about it for days and, and never get we, tired we, of it. We so. could. And, and uh, it, it important to acknowledge the, the leadership of uh, these projects in the state of Louisiana is the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. Their strategy for the maintenance and restoration of that state's shoreline is, I, I think it's about $50 billion, isn't it, Michael? That's probably outdated now. That was, yeah, that was the price <laughs> tag a few years ago. Yeah, so I'm think sure it's, it's that, higher that it's now. Gone up. But, but you're right. The, the CPRA uh, is, is the leaders in it. Um, fantastic people. Obviously, I know them very well. Brent Haas, Greg Grandy, and their crew. Um, I, I, mean, I can name names all day long. Yeah. Uh, but they have the federal partners and the, uh, the NGOs as well. You have all the institutions set up to manage Deepwater Horizon, NIFWIF, and the funding agencies yeah. and the Water Institute of the Gulf, and you have NOAA and NIMPS and NRCS, EPA, the Corps of Engineers, and LDWF and you know DEQ and all of them. And you know, we talk about all the landowners and, and the people that are involved in the oil and gas industry. The other the other complexity you guys asked about the, the, the differences between Florida and Louisiana is there's so many pipelines. It's a spaghetti yeah. uh, circuit of pipelines and oil and gas lines and things. And so you have to be very very diligent in that work and and there are places that we can't excavate uh, the latest project we designed west grand tear we we got some ruffled feathers from some of the marine contractors bit in the rock work uh, because of how we're doing the pricing on it and we have two excavate non-excavation zones because of cultural resource mm -hmm. uh, protection buffers so there's two areas that we have to build a rock structure for shoreline armoring and protection where we're not allowed to do any excavation so they can't bring in a barge full of rock, pull up and offload the rock onto the structure because you can't dig. So they're gonna to have to bring the rock in, offload it on the existing part of the structure and then transport it down the structure and place it. Kind of, it's called end-on construction. Hmm. 
And so, and, and that's only part of the job. Part of the job, we can do the excavation and it requires two different stone sizes. And so there's a lot of intricacy that goes into that one that, as I mentioned, we had a couple of ruffled feathers, but at the end of the day, Weeks Marine was a successful low bidder. And that we hope to kick off in the beginning of 2021 with that construction project. And we're getting ready to do Brenton Island with our partners, Ramble, OBG, and uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They manage the refuge on Breton Island. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt deemed it one of the national seashores uh, back in the day. And so uh, that project will kick off Callan Marine. Ansel Taylor and, and uh, his yeah. group are will, uh, one of the maiden voyages of their new dredge. will be direct pumping from six miles out to, to rebuild the beach dune and marsh on Breton Island. That one's supposed to get underway in October. So we're very busy. Ooh. All these projects were already in place before COVID-19. And so um, the contractors are, are trying their best to continue to work. They uh, have all the precautions in place. Our inspectors that are working on these projects get checked every day. The crew gets checked every day. I understand there's been one outbreak at one of the yards. A couple of people did test positive. Um, but so far we're hearing that they're able to social distance and isolate and use all of the good CDC guidelines to keep everyone safe. And we pray that they will continue to be safe and can get these projects done. And, uh, and especially with the storms out there, we want, to, we want to pray for their safety and security. So Absolutely. Well, you know, we ask a lot of our coastal resources and our coastal lands and waters. And uh, the folks who uh, work very hard to make those expectations a reality uh, begins a lot with coastal engineering and an amazing profession that is both engineering and technical and modeling scientists wetland scientists biologists community relationships but i mean the complexity the number of partners involved and we're just michael we're able to give folks a little bit of a taste of what it's like to be a professional coastal engineer these days at a time when the demands on the profession are only increasing so we really thank you for giving us a tour and an overview of the profession and a couple of the projects you're working on. Phenomenal stuff. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Michael Poff, the president of Coastal Engineering Consultants in Bonita Springs, Florida, with an office for their Louisiana operations in Denham Springs, Louisiana. Michael, thank you for being on the American Shoreline Podcast. And uh, if you're not too busy, we would love to have you back on and talk about the geology and the geomorphology of the Mississippi River. It would be an incredible uh, sounds, thing to do. Sounds wonderful. Peter and Tyler, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll bring some of my friends along for that one because they're a lot smarter than I am about it. So. Thank you much, Michael. Have a great week. Thank you, guys. Singing while I'm out of